All right, take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 6. Two verses. That's all we'll get through tonight. Romans chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Obviously, we're turning here in our study to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, and I keep speaking about it in the evening. I speak about it in the morning. It is one of the greatest portions of Scripture in the Bible. It speaks to the issue of our sanctification. The fact that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone, does not result in a life of continuing sin, but it results in a life of holiness, a life that glorifies God a life that allows us to have sweet communion with God. Now, the aim of our lives, the catechism used to ask that question, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? That's the chief end of man, right? So that's our duty, that's our greatest glory as, as our honor as Christians, to glorify God and enjoy him. And to do that, we have to win this battle over sin. Right, we have, and the way that we gain con- consistent victory over sin is to understand exactly what God has done for us in Christ at the moment of our salvation. Now, you remember at the beginning of the book of Romans, not the sixth chapter, but the beginning of the book, Paul lays out this kind of devastating um, view, right? This uh, the, the utter sinfulness of sin, if you will, right? And it's a terrifying picture of the reality of sin, uh, to put it mildly. And we have to come to an understanding of the sinfulness of sin in order to come to a greater understanding of God's forgiveness to us through Christ and God's grace to us through Christ. And once we, what we need to understand is that once we come to faith in Christ, sin's tyranny has ended. Once we come to faith in Christ, sin's tyranny has ended, the power of sin is broken, and the bondage of sin has been removed because the text says we are freed from sin. Freed from sin, completely transformed and changed, and now made slaves of righteousness. That term, freed from sin, Paul uses it three times specifically in the book of Romans. You look at, and you'll see it in chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. You see it in verse 18, our text for tonight, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And again in verse 22, having now been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome of eternal life. So to be freed from sin means that the power of sin has been broken, the tyranny of sin. Sin's bondage has been broken in the Christian's life. That's tremendously good news, right? And we need to understand that reality, and we need to live according to that reality. Because in Christ, our relationship with Adam, who we used to be apart from Christ, in Christ, our relationship with Adam has been fully, completely, forever broken, and now we are new... And now we are united or in union with the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's the reality of who we are. We who are truly saved. For a Christian, you are no longer who you used to be. You're no longer who you once were. All things are now different because you're in Christ. And again, if we've been freed from sin, then we need to live according to that reality. I remember last time I told you that sin is the most devastating, debilitating, degenerating power that's ever entered into the human race. And listen, sin, it's sin that'll kill us all, right? Sin's going to kill every one of us unless the Lord returns. And ultimately, if it weren't for the intervening grace of God through Christ, sin would send everybody to hell. But God, through his kindness in Christ, has delivered us from sin's power. Right? Gloriously, we've been delivered. We've been delivered from sin's tyranny. And God has delivered us from, uh, in his kindness, from sin's corruption. As a true believer, would never want to go back under that master since we have been set free in Christ to serve a different master. We never want to go back and serve under sin. We've been freed from him, freed from that, from that master. Now, we looked last time what Paul said uh, in the, uh, verse 17, and he lays out in verse 17 the definition for a Christian. This is what a definition of a Christian is. Verse 17. 
But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed. The definition of a Christian is you were, now you are. Right? You were, but you became. You were slaves of sin, but now you became obedient to that form of, uh, from the heart. Then verse 18, Paul's going to summarize the position of every believer. Verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 18, he's going to make an appeal to act out the position of uh, every true believer, right? That of practical holiness, practical righteousness. So Paul's going to lay down the fundamental conclusion of, of again, the reality of who we really are in, in Christ, who the Christian really is, and how a Christian should act. And he's going to do so in the face of his objectors who have continually complained that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, encourages one to lead a life of sin, right? If there are no rules and regulations, then do just whatever you want. Paul says, no, that's not true whatsoever. That's an utter impossibility. The opposite reality is true. Because those who have... uh, uh, because in the verses that Paul's laying down for us, he continues to show us how the doctrine of justification by faith alone actually produces the exact opposite in the life of a believer. When a person understands who they are, when they stand before God in grace, they realize they've not been released from the obligation to be holy. Grace has set them free from sin, not to sin further. Grace has delivered the believer from sin's bondage. Uh, grace would never energize sin. Grace would never justify a life of continuing in sin. Grace would never justly deliberate, uh, deliberate uh, willful, habitual sin, right? That's not what grace does. Grace sets us free from that, right? And because a man does not stand before God by works, but by grace, free grace is no license to sin, right? W- without restraint. Verse 15 again, what then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And again, the answer was may it never be. Right? Free grace pardons a man. Free grace renders it impossible that a man would continue to serve sin. How shall we, verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Again, the answer is you can't. We can't. How should we who, verse 3, been baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death? Verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that Christ has been raised from the dead to the glory of the Father so that we might walk in newness of life. We, verse 5, who've been united with him in the likeness of his death and resurrection, who have, verse 6, are having our old self crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Again, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? You have been set free. I mean, the only analogy that I keep coming to in my mind is, again, we didn't live there, there but we've listened, read it in history, is when, when Lincoln emancipated the slaves. Okay, by the declaration of the president, they're free. They have a choice, right? They can live as freed men or they can go back to their masters. Now I know that there's certain issues that had to be worked out and I got all that stuff historically. I'm not interested in that. That's the principle. I was talking to a fellow the other day. You guys remember, and I don't know if it's helpful. We thought it was helpful. You remember the old Andy Griffith show? Right? Do you remember, do you remember Otis? <laughs> do you remember Otis, the town drunk? Otis would get drunk and what he, would he do every night? He would go lock himself back up in the cell. I mean, the cell wasn't even locked, but he'd go put himself back in that cell, right? Because that's just what he knew. That's ridiculous. It might have been funny at the time. I don't think it's very funny now, but in the analogy, you understand you can go back into that slave, into that cell, or you can walk as freeman. And Christ offers our freedom. Christ transforms and changes people, right? How should we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. Can't go back in, lock ourselves up in the jail. Walk out, don't come back. Right? The one who is, verse 8, died with sin. The one, verse 11, who's dead to sin and now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? The person who genuinely understands the doctrine of justification by faith alone through grace alone will not, verse 12, will not let sin reign in his mortal body as to obey its lust, but will, and will not, verse 13, go on presenting the members of his body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but he will present himself to God as one who's alive from the dead and his members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you or over him, for you are not under law, but under grace. Right? The person who understands grace rightly would never want to continue in sin. They would never allow themselves seasons of sin. 
right? Uh, because he's counting on God's forgiveness. I'm not being disrespectful, but that's Roman Catholicism. I can sin as I want throughout the week. I can go to the Father, make a confession, and go back and sin as I want. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity sets us free. Because the one who now understands justification, the one who lives under grace, listen, hates sin. They hate sin, they detest sin, they loathe sin, and they actively resist the devil, and they intentionally uh, flee from unrighteousness. Because he has seen in his life, or she has seen in her life, that grace has actually transformed them. And again, they are no longer the person they used to be. So the man who is under grace rightly understands verse 16. When you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So the man who understands grace rightly, the Christian, realizes that as a servant of Christ, he is a servant of holiness. Therefore, he cannot be found engaged any longer in service to sin. That's who he once was. Right? The servant of, of grace, the servant of Christ, has been transformed by Christ. And there's evidence of that transformation both morally and spiritually. We are all slaves of the one whom we obey, he says. Right? Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And I said it this morning and I said it previously, no one is his own. Right? There's no such thing as free will. No one is his own. Everyone's a slave of a master. Either the text says of sin resulting in death or of obedience that results in righteousness. So again, no man goes unclaimed in this world. Everybody's going to be possessed by one of these two great powers, either sin or righteousness. And it is self-evident that these two powers are obviously in complete uh, opposition to one another. One leads to death and destruction. The other leads to righteousness and eternal life. No man can serve both masters at the same time. You're either a slave of one or you're a slave of the other. And uh, a man serves... Uh, this master whom he serves is seen not by what he says, but how he acts, how that person lives his life, the one to whom he obeys. Now, for the Christian, the life of rebellion and hostility towards God is over. Colossians 1 and 21. Although, listen to the words, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach, right? Reconciliation doesn't just bring forgiveness, it brings transformation because God is going to present you before himself in your day of glorification when you step from time into eternity. He's going to present you holy, blameless, beyond reproach. And he is in the process of conforming you to that very thing here in time, that sanctification. So that old sinful life, that old sinful pattern of life can't continue for the Christian because now holiness and righteousness mark the life of the one who's justified. 1 John 1 and 6. We say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 3 and 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him and he cannot sin or not habitually because he's born of God. There's a transformation, a change of ownership, right? So we want, to under, we want to make sure that we understand that for the Christian, it's not just an ethical issue, but it really is a creative miracle when we come to Christ, right? We're not only ethically bound to be obedient to Christ, we are creatively made new, obedient persons in Christ. That's a fact of reality. Christ says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments, Right? Hebrews 5, 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now listen, if you don't obey Christ, if you don't walk in righteousness, you don't walk in holiness, no matter what you say, you do not know him salvifically. You go, that's a pretty dramatic, dogmatic statement. I understand that. But in case you didn't hear me the first time, I'll say it again. If you don't obey Christ, if you don't walk in righteousness, you don't walk in holiness, no matter what you say, you do not know him on a salvific manner. Again, we went through that this morning in in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he says, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Right? So again, it's not just an ethical issue that we need to be obedient. No, it's a creative miracle. We will be obedient. We will obey Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature right old things pass away behold all things new have come so again 
when we first come to saving faith and we first believe we are united eternally with Christ, we died with him, he raised, we raised, he died, we, we died, he was resurrected, we're resurrected. And the result is because of our union with Christ, there is an irreversible qualitative difference, an irreversible new creation, us who came into being. Again, not only do we pass from eternal death to eternal life, but we are transferred from the kingdom and the power and the dominion of darkness, Satan's kingdom, into the kingdom of light, into the dominion of a new master, under the dominion of a new master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that freedom took us from being under bondage to sin to being now under bondage to obedience. Now, the last time, again, we were here in this verse 17, right? It's a monumental portion of Scripture. And again, it gives us a very clear definition Uh, of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now I said from this teaching, there are three principles uh, laid out before us by the apostle. Uh, Again, as helping us to understand the definition of a Christian. Principle number one, that a Christian is a person who has undergone a great transformation or great change. Right? A Christian is a person who's undergone a tra- transformation, a great change. Now again, no man in this world is born a Christian. All men are born guilty before God and Adam, and as such, all men are God's enemies. Dead in trespasses and sins, aliens, rebels, children of wrath. Every man, woman, child born into this world needs a transformation. They need to be made entirely different from the person who they were when they first entered this world. And again, the apostle says that, That's a true statement. By his statement, he says, you were and you became. You were and you became. So a Christian is not just somebody who believes a certain set of intellectual facts concerning the person of Jesus Christ. A person was and now he's different. You were, you became. A Christian is entirely different from whom they used to be before they became in union with Christ. A a, a Christian has been regenerated brought from death to life, made spiritually uh, alive in Christ. So a Christian has been reconciled to God, no longer is is he an alien or a rebel, no longer is he a child of wrath or a child of the devil, but now he's a child of God. Completely different kingdom, completely different realm, completely different father, born again from the dead with newness of life. I say to you all the time, eternal life starts the moment you begin. Eternal life is not just in the by and by when you take your last breath and you're on a cloud playing a harp in eternity. That's not eternal life. The moment you come to faith in Christ, you've just been translated, transferred, transformed, changed. The moment you come to faith in Christ, you become become obedient from the heart. And again, that obedience from the heart speaks of that radical transformational change that took place at some point in your past. And again, if there's not a radical transformational change in your life from before Christ to now that you claim to be in Christ, if others around you and you yourself cannot see that change, if you and others around you cannot know for a fact that there's been a change of masters that has been taken that has taken place in your life, it's very possible indeed that you're not saved. You're not who you claim to be. Because there's nothing more radical of a transformational change than being changed from being in Adam to being in Christ. There's nothing more of a transformational change than being changed from being a slave to sin to now being a slave of righteousness. And again, Paul says, verse 17, you became obedient. Now that verb is a passive uh, voice. That means that you didn't do it. Somebody acted upon you. The person who acted upon you was God. So this transformation is what God does because God comes in our life and he changes our heart. And and this is a matter of reality. It's a matter of fact. Paul's not asking you to do anything to get changed. He's just saying, look, this is the reality of the fact. This is what happened. This is the truth of every true believer. From the heart, there has been an internal desire change now to obey the word of God, to keep the word of God, to love the Savior. Again, think about in your own life. I don't know, some of us came to Christ early in life. Some of us came to Christ later in life. I came to Christ in my mid-20s. Before I came to faith in Christ in my mid-20s, I did not care about God. I didn't care about his word. I didn't care about Christ. And all I did was sin. I never thought about it. 
when God and his kindness started to work in my life, he changed me from not wanting to know this word to not being able to get enough of this word. My, my parents are in the other room watching TV and doing nothing, and I'm, I'm in, I'm in a, a place reading my Bible because I can't get enough of it. And I've told you this story before. When I really got serious with the Lord and started to walk with the Lord and started to study his word, 15 minutes wasn't enough, 20 minutes wasn't enough, an hour wasn't enough, two hours wasn't enough, three hours, I'm going, boy, I better get to work or I'm going to get fired. Right? I mean, I, and where am I going to find that time? I just got, kept getting up earlier and earlier. That's reality, right? Guys who have families and jobs, you know that. There's only so much time. So you can sleep or you can study God's word, but you probably can't do both. It's a fact of, fact of reality. Right? But when God got a hold of my life, I read and read and read, and I couldn't get enough. And I just kept reading. And God in his kindness changed my thoughts, my life, my, my vocation, uh, by just coming to a greater understanding of who he is, and that was all through the word. Remember I said this morning, true followers of Christ love his word. False followers of Christ have had enough. Please, it's over. I, I can't deal with it. Right? So he gives, again, he says, you became obedient, obedient a passive voice uh, verb. God has acted. It's a fact of reality. And again, uh, Paul's not asking. He's just saying, look, this is the truth. Every true believer from the heart, there has been this internal transformation and change. He says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching or that form of doctrine uh, to which you were delivered. Now, the word form has the kind of idea of a mold. So when you became a Christian, in essence, if you can grab the picture, your old self was melted down. Right? And you were re-poured. You were re-poured into a new mold, the gospel mold, if you will. An understanding of the truth. And then you came out as a new creation. Right? The old, old you is gone. Excuse me, a new you has come. And again, your lifestyle now in Christ manifests that creative miracle. And no longer do you respond as one who's under the lordship of Satan, but now you respond as one who's under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? Transformation Number two principle, the second principle, there's been a complete change in ownership. Again, you were a slave of sin and you became now obedient. Right? You were a slave of sin and you became obedient. So no longer is the Christian under the power of darkness, excluded from the life of God. No longer is a, a Christian a slave of sin and the devil. But now the Christian is a slave of holiness, a slave of righteousness. He is a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and he is a willing servant of Christ. But for the unregenerate, again, that's not the way it is. The unregenerate's a slave of sin. He's a slave of unrighteousness. He lives to serve himself, and he lives to serve his master, the devil. And for the unregenerate man, the gospel makes no sense to them. They can't understand it. And you know why they can't understand it? Because their master, the devil, the great deceiver, the liar, will not allow them to understand it. They will, he will not allow them to listen to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 3 that the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Satan is an active opposition in the life of the one whom he has as his slave to anything that has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. So men who are unregenerate are trapped in their own sin and their own rebellion and then doubly trapped by the God of this world who's blinding their eyes to the truth, right? All of the supposed quote-unquote good people in the world who refuse to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are in this category. Their minds are blinded. And the Bible says, in fact, they are perishing. They are slaves to their master, sin and the devil, and their master, again, will not allow them to hear and to see the wonderful truth about the dear Lord Jesus Christ. So for the Christian, first, there's been a great change, a transformational change. Second, there's been a complete change of ownership. And the third point that I brought out was that this was found in answering the question, how does this transformational change happen? Right? How does this change of ownership happen? And I showed you that Paul lays out there's two ways, two agencies, right? An immediate agent, then an ultimate agent. The immediate agent, it says, is that form of teaching to which you were committed. And again, the text says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed. The New King James says, you, were, you obeyed from the heart to that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So at a specific point in time in the Christian's life, in the past, we became obedient 
from the heart to the form of teaching or to the form of doctrine to which we're, you were delivered. Or we are delivered. And I said, look, that form of teaching, that doctrine, obviously speaks overall of the gospel. It's the gospel of God. What does the gospel speak about? Well, it speaks about the reality of who God is, the reality of God's existence, the fact of God's holiness, and the fact of man's sinfulness. The fact that we are all under God's wrath. The fact that God in his infinite mercy and love has done something on our behalf that we cannot do for ourselves. That God has found a way to pay the penalty for uh, our sin, which is death. And he's done so in a manner that doesn't violate his justice or his righteousness or his holiness. And he has done so by sending his son, the dear Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die on Calvary's cross to be the substitute. To die a substitutionary propitiatory death a sacrifice for sin, a sin that takes away the personal wrath of God because our sin has offended him. And then God judged our sin in Christ and God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, therefore acknowledging the fact that he fully accepts Christ's sacrifice in full, in total. Nothing else can be done. Nothing else needs to be done. Christ paid the penalty. He rose from the dead, and the Bible says because of Christ's resurrection, or Christ was raised because of our justification. God again counted his a sacrifice perfect. Therefore, we now have peace with God. That transformation has brought us into God's family, again, no longer under wrath, no longer under condemnation, but now at peace with God. Now, the, that's the immediate agent, the word, the form, the gospel. The ultimate agent, of course, is God himself, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you were slaves, you became obedient to the heart, or from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed, and having been freed from sin, verse 18, you became slaves of righteousness. So God himself is the blessed ultimate agent that makes all this work, that makes the transformation of the Christian possible. It's God who, who brings us to complete uh, change, complete change of ownership, complete transformation. It's all about God. None of us can change our master. None of us, I'll get a show of hands. How many of you chose to be born? Okay, just like I thought, nobody. How many of you chose to be born again? The answer is the same thing, none of us. We were dead in trespasses and sins. I would suggest to you that dead things can't do anything. Not even believe. Dead things can't choose for Jesus. Again, it's all of God's great mercy and grace. God is the ultimate agent. Right? No man causes his own birth. No man causes his rebirth. No man has the ability to quicken himself, as they would say in the olden days, to to bring himself to life, to raise himself from the dead. Right? We can't do it physically. We can't do it spiritually. Only God can do it. So again, if the change is going to happen in our life, it's because the God of mercy, the God who is rich in mercy, has acted on man's behalf, and that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has done that very thing. That God desires for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires for men, as I said this morning, to come freely and take of the bread of life. To not remain under condemnation. Why will you die, God says to the Old Testament prophet? Well, come. Come, buy and eat. Come without money. Now, the text for tonight, verse 18. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19 says, I'm speaking to you in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to purity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Right? So verse 18 presents the position of the believer, the present reality of every believer. This is what happened the moment you believed. This is what happened at the moment of conversion. This is what is true presently about the believer now. The believer has been freed from sin and has become a slave of righteousness. That's positional reality. At the moment of conversion, we were freed from sin. We were liberated from the dominion of sin. We were released from our former bondage of sin. John 8, 38, Jesus says, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Do you believe that? If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. I do not understand the kind of Christianity that's popular for some unknown reason to me that says that Jesus leaves you in your sin and you're going to struggle with it the rest of your life. I mean, there may be a battle, and there will be a battle. I'll talk about that in a moment. But Jesus wants your freedom. Jesus has bought your freedom. You can walk out a free man, or you can go lock yourself back up in the city jail every night. But then you're not living the reality of who you are. Jesus has set his people free. And that's true. Listen, remember a couple times ago I talked about the misunderstanding of sanctification? That freedom is true of all Christians. Not not merely true of a select few who have had a quote-unquote 
second blessing or a quote-unquote moment of dedication or rededication. That's a true statement of every Christian at the moment of salvation. The Christian has been freed from sin. So what does it mean to have been freed from sin? Well, I'll start out with the negative, what it doesn't mean, does not mean. To be freed from sin does not speak of sinless perfectionism, as some have wrongly taught. To be freed from sin does not mean that we are entirely free from sin in the sense that sin no longer has any remnants in our mortal body. I've told you this before, and we've spoken about the issue. There is this thing called the flesh, right? There's this thing called the flesh, the sinful remnants of who we used to be that's still left in our members. Paul calls it indwelling sin, and I want you to look over and see it in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we're coming there. I keep alluding to it. But we're coming there. Verse uh, uh, 18, Romans uh, chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Uh, who wrote chapter 7? Same guy who wrote chapter 6. The one who said you've been freed from sin understands there's a battle. Right? There's a daily battle with sin. He calls it indwelling sin. Right? There's a fight going on. This unredeemed humanness. Uh, again, we have been saved. Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us. We've been saved by Christ. And we've been completely transformed. But we have to deal very harshly with our sin in this lifetime until we reach final glorification. Again, at the time we reach final glorification at our deaths or when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. But in the moment that we still live in time, we have to put to death actively uh, the flesh. It needs to be mortified, not given into. It needs to be killed, not pandered to. Again, if you struggle with a certain issue, I would say take extreme measures. Now, again, you have to understand, if you struggle with pornography, I would say don't pluck your eyes out because then you could still struggle in your mind. You might want to disconnect your Internet. I can't live without the Internet. Well, yes, you can. For thousands of years, thousands of years, people live very well without the Internet. For thousands of years, we were just talking before the service, People actually, I know this is going to be shocking, hold on to your chair. People actually didn't have phones on their bodies. I know that's impossible for you to believe, but you know when I got my phone upgrade, I talked to the guy at the cricket store and said my favorite phone was the one in my parents' kitchen on the wall that had like a 14-foot cord on, and Mrs. Smith always answered it when uh, the phone rang. And we always have to say Mrs. Smith. It was called a party line for you young people. Right? You actually shared the line. Everybody didn't have their own individual cell phone. There's a lot of things that we think we can't live without that people throughout history have lived without very well, and people who are serious about their sin have taken radical steps to deal with that. Again, you pluck your eyes out uh, and, and go to an island, and you're going to still lust in your mind. That's not the answer. right? It's the heart, the mind. It's a realization of who you are in Christ. You, a realization of this indwelling sin principle. Having been freed from sin doesn't mean that we are free from the temptation of sin. Look over to uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall, verse 13, for no temptation has overtaken you, but as such is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from immorality." I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't read that right, did I? No temptation has overtaken you, but it's such as common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond to what you are able. But with the temptation, God will provide a way of escape. 
And that's what it says the second time I read it. Same time way as the first time I read it. Do battle with sin, do battle with indwelling sin, and realize that God has provided a way of escape if you want to take it. So instead of enjoying your sin and practicing your sin, maybe you ought to be looking for the escape hatch, the escape route. Right? Because God has promised that he will provide a way of escape for you. And then the command again is flee idolatry. Idolatry is anything that puts, anything you put in place of God. That would be your sin. Right? I want my sin more than I want to be pleasing to God. That's idolatry. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Right? We are to wage war against our lust, against our flesh. We are to wage war against indwelling sin, our unredeemed humanness. Because we've been freed from sin. Doesn't mean we're not going to have a battle. Doesn't mean we're not going to have a temptation. But what does it mean? Right? That being freed from sin means this. That the Christian has been freed from the power and the tyranny of sin. Now, Charles Hodge says this. Freed by the grace of God from sin, who was a despotic master. Right? We've been freed from that despot. Right? Having been freed from sin means this is who we now are as Christians. Having been freed from sin means that this we have now become slaves of righteousness. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to that form or to that from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Again, you were and now in Christ you became. You were, you became. Now when it says you were slaves of sin, it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. That means it's an ongoing reality. In other words, before you came to Christ, or for the unregenerate man, he is still under the power of the yoke of sin. And all that an unregenerate person can do is sin, and sin continually. They live in unbroken slavery to sin. But you, if you're a Christian, you were a slave of sin, Verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became a slave of righteousness. So sin for you is no longer an ongoing reality in the life of the believer. So at the moment of conversion, all believers were immediately transferred from one slavery to another slavery. Again, I told you there's no such thing as free will. There's no such thing as free people. Everyone is serving somebody. Everybody is a slave. You're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. At the moment of conversion... Believers are immediately transferred from one slavery to another slavery. God has freed us from being slaves to sin, and God has delivered us, every believer, to be now slaves of righteousness, slaves of holiness, with a new internal desire to be obedient to Him. Again, you were slaves of sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now stop and think about this. This is, this is you're going to go, oh yeah, why didn't I think like this? I don't know, because we don't, we don't think well. Ezekiel 36. Right? You're familiar with it. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. God says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put <clears throat> my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be care, uh, careful to observe my ordinances. Right? It's called the new covenant. Jesus is the minister of the new covenant. Jesus says, or God says, I took out your heart of stone and I replace it with the heart of flesh. And I'm going to write my law upon your heart. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. And it's the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as a believer that's going to help us walk in obedience to God's statutes. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to be the dominant force in our life to keep us focused on being obedient to God and God's truth. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God says, look, this is a reality in your life. You should see it. And everybody else around you should see it because I've given you a new heart. Now consider this. Think how, just consider how unthinkable it would be for a man to have a heart transplant surgery and not know that he was ever in the hospital. You ever seen anybody that had heart surgery? Not even transplant, just heart. It's a pretty major thing. I mean, they pull your chest apart and other guys with their hands and stuff. It's a major deal, Right? How unthinkable would it be for a man to have a heart transplant surgery and never know he was in the hospital, to not know that it happened? 
as that heart transplant would give that person new life and new energy. Something wrong with his heart, causing him to have open heart, not just open heart surgery, but a transplant. Got to get a new one. That other one's bad. Can't even fix it up anymore. You know, got to get a new one. There, there would be something dramatically different about that man's life, that, that life, that energy he would have. Likewise, the analogy carries over for us who be given a new heart by God. We have a new life. We have a new energy, new motivation. We, we walk in obedience to God. And that has to be uh, evident to everybody, especially the person who had the heart transplant. But everybody around them has to see that evidence that something is different. God is at work. God who is at work, uh, the one who is at work within us to both will and do his work, right? To do his good pleasure. God is working and everybody should see that. And you should know that reality. Because that transformed life is not something you can fake. It's a reality. Having been freed from sin, again, the Christian has a complete change of masters. It's impossible for the one who's a slave of sin, who has not been freed from sin, and become a slave of righteousness. It's impossible for that person to stay who they once were, to stay continually serving sin, to serving sin as a master. They can't do it. God's done a supernatural work, heart transplant, new life, new desires. And again, this is who we are as Christians. We have become freed from from sin, and we've become slaves of righteousness. And again, that has to be true of every one of us in the room who calls ourselves a Christian. Right? You're not a Christian no matter what you say, no matter how much you protest, if you're still a slave to sin. John Calvin said this, it's unreasonable that anyone after having been made free should continue in a state of bondage. For you ought to maintain the freedom which he has received. It is not fitting that you should be brought uh, uh, again under the dominion of sin from which you've been set at liberty by Christ. You have been set free, right? Changed from the inside out. You've been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. So again, no man can hear that reality. No man can respond to that reality and believe the gospel of grace if his old master, if he's still under the dominion of his old master, if he's still a slave of sin. But for the believer, we have been freed from sin. We've become slaves of righteousness. And again, that's the fundamental truth in the New Testament about the believer, freed from sin. No longer under its authority, no longer under its dominion, no longer a slave to its power. Why? Because we have been set free by a greater power than our flesh. We have been set free by a greater power than the prince of the power of the air, uh, the king of darkness in this world, right? We have been set free by God's grace. That's tremendous. We've been set free by a greater power, grace. And again, that phrase, you become slaves of righteousness, could be translated like this, you became enslaved to righteousness. It's in the passive voice. Again, meaning this is something that is done to you. You were brought into bondage. You were enslaved to righteousness. You were made slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ, slaves of holiness. Again, everybody in the world is a slave of somebody, either sin and death or righteousness and holiness and, and eternal life. Right? That's the position of the Christian. God in his grace has enslaved them to righteousness, which means that now they have come under his power, his influence, his control, the control of righteousness. Now you've got to make sure you understand what it says there, right? It doesn't say that you're attempting to be righteous. It doesn't say that you hope to be righteous. It doesn't say that you desire to be righteous. The verse says, as I read it, it says you became slaves of righteousness enslaved to righteousness. In the Greek, it's in the indicative mood, which means it's a statement of reality or statement of fact. That's who the Christian is, enslaved to righteousness. You have no reason to even walk into the sheriff's office, let alone into the sheriff's cell room. You have nothing to do with him anymore. You're free. Go as freemen. You used to be ruled by, governed, tyrannized by sin, as slaves to sin, but now you're subject, subjected to righteousness, to the power of the control of righteousness. Again, this is what happens at the moment of regeneration. This is what happens at, at the moment of salvation. So again, if you remember a couple times back, I, I told you about people who like to separate justification and sanctification as a second word. You, you can see how unbiblical that line of thinking is. To separate justification and sanctification that a man can be justified and yet remain in sin and at some future point subject himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ in obedience. That's entirely wrong. That's not biblical thinking. It's not biblical teaching. Because the moment a man stops being a slave to sin, 
he becomes a slave of righteousness because he's been freed from sin. Right? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there's no interval in between. There's no such thing as the spiritual, uh, a spiritual no man's land, no neutral position. You're either a slave of sin or else you're a slave of righteousness. The moment you are delivered from one, you're in the other. The moment you're delivered from one, you're in the other. It's instantaneous reality. Sanctification starts the moment of your rebirth, the moment of your conversion, and you don't have a choice in the matter, right? If you're in Jesus Christ, this is what God does. He regenerates, he justifies, and he begins the process of sanctification. Again, 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Does that make sense? This is the work of God. It's a reality. Not asking you to do anything, just asking you to realize who you are. It's the great emancipation. It's the great proclamation, or the emancipation proclamation. It's a reality of who we are first before there's any go do this, go do No, it's just realize who you are. Realize the tremendous freedom that you have. Now, again, make sure you understand how this happens. I, I've said it several times, but how do we become slaves of righteousness? By keeping rules? Regulations coming to church? No. By our own effort? No. It's all by God. All because of our union with Christ. This whole thing is written in the indicative, meaning it's just statement after fact, statement after fact, statement after fact, statement after fact. Okay? It's not in the imperative. There aren't any imperatives. Go do this. Don't do that. There aren't any commands. It's just statement after fact. Why? Because Paul's trying to under, help us understand the reality of who we are, but he's helping. he's trying to help in your mind, in my mind, elevate the position that we have in Christ and at the same time elevate the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, you, you didn't just get saved so you don't have to go to hell. You got saved so you could be set free in time. You are not an ex-whatever, fill-in-the-blank form of sinner who is saved but you're still struggling. I get it, we're struggling with indwelling sin, but you have the freedom to put that dead man in the grave, as I've said numerous times, and leave him there. Why, why are you digging up that corpse of the past? I'm a recovering fill-in-the-blank murderer. Okay, No, no, no. You're freed in Christ. You're no longer a murderer. You murdered because apart from Christ, all you did was sin, and you had hate so much in your, bo- in your mind that, that hate filled, spilled over into the faculties of your body, and you poured out that anger on someone else not who you are you may have to pay the penalty for that in time right but it's not who longer you are who you are you're free in christ take that freedom run with that freedom take that freedom exalt god and exalt the person of the lord jesus christ for that freedom that he has granted you it's freedom across the board you're now a slave of righteousness and again no man does that to himself it's something that god does through christ in our union with christ all right these are all positional truths. I, I got it, but we got to understand position to understand practice, right? We're all one with Christ, united with Christ, in Christ, baptized into his death and his resurrection because of all he is, all that he has done for us on our behalf. He's the one who makes us a slave because none of us can make ourselves slaves of righteousness. No, none of us can deliver us from the slavery of sin. None of us can cause ourselves to be born again. Again, it's all of God, all of the grace of God. So God, by his kindness, takes hold of a man, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, a man is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Right? He, he is transformed, changed, given a new nature, given a new heart, placed under the power of a, a dominion of a new master, a slave of righteousness. And again, once you come to that knowledge of the truth and you're born again, that Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you, he guarantees your sanctification. He, his indwelling is going to guarantee that you're going to be brought to God, that you're going to be made more each and every day <clears throat> to look more and more like the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the process in time, conforming us to Christ's image. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, here it is, your sanctification. If it's God's will for you to be sanctified, guess what? You're going to be sanctified. I'm going to be sanctified. <clears throat> Excuse me, because we're enslaved to righteousness. Right? Again, this is something that God does, something that God continues to do, something that God will do. 
So again, you see the utter absurdity of the statement of the guy who says, well, you know, Jesus is my Savior, but I still walk in sin. You know, Jesus is my Savior. I'm thankful for the fire insurance, but he's not my Lord. I'm going to keep doing whatever I want and live whatever kind of life I want. But I, quote unquote, accepted Jesus. And somebody told me, that's all I got to do is accept Jesus. <clears throat> and I'm in. But I told you this morning, I was talking to a person about all these very issues. And I said, you better understand biblical Christianity and not cultural Christianity. Because cultural Christianity is going to lead you astray. And cultural Christianity is going to lead you to the pit of hell. Because the cultural Christ is not the biblical Christ. The biblical Christ demands more than the cultural Christ. Cultural Christ just wants you to accept Jesus and live in your, the pit of your sin and rebellion like he used to do. And the biblical Christ says, no, that's not, that's not true. My people, I set them free. I transform them. I change them from the inside out. I give them a new heart, a new mind, new desires. So it's utterly foolishness to say, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. It's utterly foolish. It's unbiblical. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be, right? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 15. What shall we say? Or what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, may it never be. The history of the church of Jesus Christ has been that those men and women who were once vile, foul, corrupt who actually came to genuine repentance and saving faith in Christ, they were actually completely changed and transformed. That's the history of the church of Jesus Christ. People who were once vile, foul, utterly corrupt have been completely changed and transformed. They now live new lives by believing the gospel of grace because of God's activity in their lives. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And uh, in verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Again, you were, you became. Tremendous truth. You were, you became. Now verse 19. And I'll try to move a little bit faster here. I'm speaking in human terms. Paul says, because of the weakness of your flesh. I, uh, um, he says, look, look I've got to explain this analogy to you. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So I'm going to use an analogy, an illustration of slavery, because of the weakness of your flesh. Now, any time an illustration is used, it should be used to bring some uh, clarity and understanding to the subject matter to the hearer. Uh, and this analogy of slavery used by that very purpose for the, by the apostle. So the, the apostle uses the analogy also uh, to uh, this illustration of slavery to make sure we don't misunderstand what he's saying. What he's saying. It's possible to misunderstand doctrine. It's possible to misunderstand or distort doctrine even to our own harm. Uh, our brother Peter says this, Peter three, uh, 2 Peter 3.15. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom of God, our God given to him, wrote to you also in all of his letters, speaking to them of the things which are in some, uh, which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable, unstable distort, as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So brother Peter says, you know, beloved Paul, I love him. Uh, he's a little difficult to read at times. Loose paraphrase. Got to make sure I'm really understanding what he's saying. Right? There's, there's things that are hard to understand, but the untaught, the unstable, try to distort, as they do a lot of Scripture, the rest of Scripture, even to their own destruction. So a proper analogy, a proper illustration, is always to bring clarity to the subject matter and to help the hearer be protected from false understanding of what is being taught. And perhaps that's exactly why Paul uses this analogy. Remember I told you slavery is very common? He wants to protect the untaught and unstable who distort the scripture to their own destruction. It's very possible in verse 14 again, when he said, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Somebody might think again, since I'm under grace, I'm not under law, therefore I'm free, absolutely free to do whatever I want to do with my life. Right? To which Paul says, no, that's not true. Again, no man's free. No man's absolutely free. Every man's a slave. Again, you're either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. You're either under the dominion and the control of sin and the devil, or you're under the control of Christ and under the control of righteousness. That's why he introduces the illustration. That's why he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. So Charles Hodge says, look, this is just an illustration drawn from the common uh, life of men to set forth the relationship of the believer to God. A slave, what's common about the slave? The common thing about the slave is he has a master, and he has to be obedient to that master. And again, he's saying, look, Paul's saying, look, to use this illustration, we're slaves of Christ, and now we have to be obedient to Christ. 
It's a common illustration of the day, right? So obedience is the reality for the slave. Now, the reason, uh, he says again, for the illustration is because of the weakness of your flesh. Didn't say the, the weakness of your intellect, the weakness of your mind, the weakness of your flesh. Again, that remaining corruption within us. After we become regenerate in Christ, uh, after we s- submit ourselves to Christ as a uh, master, there's still the flesh, the, the faculties of, of our mind uh, that try to, or the faculties of a man that try to pervert and control uh, our, our thinking, the, 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 the flesh that tries to be misused by sin. And, and so we have trouble, uh, not just with our intellect, but we really have trouble with the flesh. That's really what causes rebellion, the weakness of flesh. But when man sinned, when Adam sinned, he lost the relationship with God and the fellowship he had with God, and he lost the ability to discern spiritual truth. Right? Second, 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Right? Even for the true believer, believer, there's still an imperfection in our complete full understanding of spiritual things because of the weakness of our flesh. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. This is not on the test. It, well, it is on the test. It wasn't on the original form of the test, but it is right at the moment. How are we going to overcome that weakness? I'll give you a hint. Okay? How are we going to overcome that weakness? Having our mind renewed by the truth, right? I'm holding up a Bible if you're listening and not watching. Right? So this person I was talking to, as I told you my story this morning, this person said to me, well, I just know if it's true. I just know if it's false. How do you know? I just know. Right, so do you have a burning in the bosom that tells you that this is the right thing, that this affirm. You don't know anything unless you submit yourself to the truth of the Scripture. That's the only way that we can, even in, even in our redeemed uh, humanity, overcome our fleshly inclinations because we like to think what we want to think because even fighting our flesh, we want to sin. So the only way that we can really know anything is to understand what the Bible says and see if it lines up, our thinking lines up with the truth. And that's what Paul's saying here. Look, I'm giving you this great illustration. I'm going through this long diatribe here so that you'd understand this analogy of slaves and masters and obedience to that master. I want you to completely understand what took place at conversion. And I want to bring clarity to make sure there's no misunderstanding. So Paul, <laughs> Paul's trying to make it as simple as possible for Paul. So hopefully we can understand it, right? Because of the weakness of our flesh. So he gives this little parenthetical thought about the weakness of our flesh or about um, um, uh, uh, our... uh, uh, Where is it? I'm speaking in human terms, right? Because of the weakness of our flesh. He gets to that little parenthetical thought and he picks up verse 19. Just as you presented your members of slaves to impurity and lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, now present your members to slaves of righteousness resulting in sanctification. So again, Paul is changing the discussion from their position to practice right you've been freed from sin you became slaves of righteousness now this is the command live out who you are in christ right you've been delivered from the bondage and the tyranny of sin now act who you are in christ be obedient to this new master the lord jesus christ so in your old pattern of life your own way of old way of life paul says when you are a slave to sin you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness. The word uh, presented means to place beside or near, to give over to one's disposal. You presented your members as slaves to impurity. And you know what's interesting about that verb, presented? It's in the active voice. See, what's, what's important about that? That means it's not something that was passive in your life. It means in your old life it was active, it was a choice. You gave yourself over as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, we all did. Do you know why? Here it is, because we liked it. That's the reality. We liked it. We liked the sin. It's not passive, it's active. You presented your members. You actively presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So it says impurity and lawlessness. I think in some translations it says uncleanness and iniquity. These are just words that cover a wide uh, variety of evil and defiling sin, both internally and externally. Paul uses the same uh, kind of word, impurity, in First Corinthians or Romans one verse twenty-four. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. Carthasia is the word for impurity, uncleanness, uh, physical uncleanness, moral uncleanness, impurity of lusts, of pornographic thoughts that lead to pornographic activities. 
God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored. Right? We used to present our members to, as slaves to impurity. And then he says lawlessness, anomia, without the law, a condition of lawlessness. It's a complete breakdown of obedience to God, to his statutes. It's living as if there is no law, no God, rejecting God. It's not caring what God thinks whatsoever about one's life or what one does. You know what it is? It's the life, it's the world in which we live. This is the modern world that we're living in. It's a life of lawlessness. We're seeing it descend further and further into lawlessness and more lawlessness. This is our country. You see that bottom as it were kind of dropping out. Our society is crashing to all-time lows of immorality and unrighteousness because of lawlessness. Now that's what you did. That's what I did willingly, actively, before we were saved. We gave ourselves up to these activities. You presented actively your members of your the, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which resulted in nothing but further lawlessness. Right? Lawlessness produces more lawlessness. You see it on the TV. Someone says this: cancer that reproduces cancer reproduces itself until the whole body is destroyed. So sin reproduces itself until the whole person is destroyed, and that's what sin does. Sin just keeps taking people down and down and down and continues to destroy them. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So now, verse 19, present your members as slaves. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, so present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So since you've been set free from tyranny and the bondage of sin, be who you are. Be slaves of righteousness. Present your members as slaves of righteousness. You were slaves of sin. You've been freed from sin. Now you have become slaves of righteousness. Christ set you free. Christ redeemed you from sin. Not to give you freedom to do as you please, but freedom for you to do as he pleases. You're his slave. And his desire for you is righteousness. Holy living. You willingly, actively giving yourself and all of your being, all of your intellect, all of your time, all of your energy, all of your money, all of who you are to him presented to him as slaves of righteousness. One commentator says this. He says, We must present our eyes to God, what you are looking at throughout the day. You must present your ears to God, what you are listening to throughout the day, because it is affecting your spiritual life. You must present your mind to God, what you think about during the day. You must present your feet to God, where you go and where you travel. You must present your tongue to God, what you say to others, you must present your hands to God, what you lay hold of and what you do. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, every member of your body must be continually presented to God. Every aspect of your lives must be presented to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ like a priest offering a sacrifice on the altar. Right? Your life is no longer be your life is no longer to be in your hands, but given over to God. That's who we are in Christ. Right? That's who we are as blood bought saints obedience to christ and what's the result of being a slave of righteousness right again before you were saved you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness which led to nothing more than further lawlessness but in christ as slaves of righteousness present your members as slaves to righteousness he says which results in sanctification that's reality that's a position of personal holiness in the life of the believer. That's you and I becoming more and more like Christ. You and I growing more and more in our godliness. Someone said this, sanctification causes us to be standing out in this world like bright shining stars on a dark night. It should be obvious to every believer, the slave of Jesus Christ, by the holiness and the righteousness that is being realized in their life. Again, if people around you and you yourself cannot see there's something different about you, then I would suggest to you there's nothing different about you. And you're still living your old man. And you've been set free from that man. That's why we are called by Paul to live who we are. Steve Lawson says this. He says, These verses help us to understand what happened when we were born again. At the time we were converted, we may not have understood this with clarity, but the reality nevertheless took place. We knew that we were a great sinner and Christ was a great Savior. We knew we desperately needed great forgiveness. We knew that we needed to commit our life to Christ. In that moment, we were born again. As we read our Bible, we realize that we were unplugged from our old way of life and its old, old sinful patterns, and we were plugged into the grace 
of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is phenomenal truth. He says that I pray grabs you and will not let you go. Right? That is true, right? It's a phenomenal truth. So the question is, is this consistent with your own life? Right? Does your life match up? Right? Having been freed from sin, are you now living as enslaved to righteousness? Are you presenting the members of your body to righteousness? Are you living out the reality of who you are in Christ? And is that evidence of that transformational life in you evidence to not only to you, but everybody around you? Right? Who are you obeying? You've been set free. Live as free men. Live as free women. Now, I, I'm getting ready to close here, but have you ever stopped and realized these things? I mean, again, I said earlier, this is just like positional truth, positional truth, just being piled up on top of each other because Paul wants us to look to Christ. Paul wants us to understand how, how great of a Savior he is and what he has done for us. I think people, I think Christians, genuine Christians, struggle with holy living because they don't understand who they are in Christ. We've been pounding, pounding this out for weeks. I don't know how many sermons this is, and we're into verse 19. That's because we're going fast through this section of Scripture. We could be going slower. But we need to go at least the pace we're going so that we can understand who we are and live as those freed men to realize who we are in Christ, to actively, willingly present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, because now in Christ we have that ability. Before Christ we didn't. I close with these words by the great expositor D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, As you go on living this righteous life and practicing it with all your might and energy in your time, you will find that the process that went on before, which you went from bad to worse and became viler and viler, is entirely reversed. You will become cleaner and cleaner and purer and purer, holier and holier, and more and more conformed to the image of the Son of God. And we Christians need to remind ourselves of who we are and what we are. We are children of the Heavenly King. We are members of the household of God. We are the children of God. It is only as we remember this and live accordingly, proud of our name and of our calling, that we shall not only live the righteous life, but we shall be advancing unto holiness. Our hearts will become cleaner and cleaner, purer and purer, and so will our lives. Isn't that good? That's really good. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the reality of these truths that you have shown to us and point us to you, our God, and to Christ, our Savior, of who we used to be. We used to be slaves of sin. But then because of your kindness, we became obedient to your teaching, to the doctrinal truth, the gospel. We've been freed from sin. We've been enslaved to righteousness. And now we don't present ourselves anymore to slaves of impurity and lawlessness, but we present ourselves to you, slaves of righteousness, resulting in sanctification and resulting in us giving you praise and glory and thanks and honor for the great transformation that you have made in our lives through Christ. May that be an evident reality in all of our lives, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.